Travis, got a question, a couple hypotheticals today. What trend, and I asked this to a, a really good pitching guy today, oh, what trend do you think you're going to see in pitching next? Because we, we talked a lot last week about baseball ebbing and flowing and being cyclical. And I was thinking further about that. And right now, the, the biggest push in pitching is velo at the top of the zone. And we know at some point it's going to change. And maybe not this year, but what do you think the next trend in pitching is? Well, I'm I'm I got to two answers. My hitters and stay, stay a little bit ahead of you guys. Yeah, I got, I got, I got two answers to that. Um, one from the Arsenal side. Um, I think you're going to go back to um, variance in um, vertical. So I think you're going to find a lot more value in being able to find verticality in a pitch, which is going to be primarily from the off-speed standpoint. Um, because that's what needs to be paired up with a high fastball anyways. And honestly, I don't, it's like one of those things like with younger kids, in my mind, younger kids hit or have the ability to hit the higher part of the zone better than the lower part because younger kids tend not to hinge well. So to actually get a ball above infield plane as a hitter on a low pitch as a young kid is very, is very difficult because they don't bend over. They typically just throw their barrel down to the bottom part of the zone at the big league level. Those guys are, typically very, very good athletes. Um, so they have a lot less issues hinging. They have a lot less adjust, uh, issues with adjustability to the bottom part of the zone, which is why I think they targeted their swings there for a long time, which is why they started going back up um, because going up kind of takes a hitter a little bit back out of their athletic position because you're having to be in a taller posture obviously to manage that. So I don't know the top of the zone is going to phase out for a while, but I think it's going to be the combination now of how to manage both of them, both of them still better. And the other way to manage the top of the zone is to have, instead of more probably horizontal, is going to be to have more vertical. So you're getting a guy to have to alter posture more from a high posture on a high pitch to a low posture on a low pitch. Um, so arsenal-wise, I think that's kind of where that's going to go. And I think you're going to get some guys that continue to start pitching more backwards, where they're going to go a lot of breaking balls down in the zone, to get to the fastball up in the zone versus fastballs up in the zone to set up something down in the zone. Well, later. If hitting wasn't hard enough the way it was, <laughs> we're already well, throwing friggin' two O changeups, you know? So, like, well, so from the other standpoint, here's the way, here's the way that, you know, I probably had this conversation a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago um, with another, with another hitting guy. Um, who's a, who's a big league hitting coach somewhere other than, the coach we had on um, is we were talking, I started talking about matchups and I related it to him at first. And I'll relate it this way is as a pitcher, when I was pitching, I had a very, very much higher success rate against me being a right-handed pitcher against lefties than I did righties. And the reason why I attributed that to is, What's were that? you a sinker sinker ball guy, or were you fairly straight? No, four four, four okay. seam cutter. Well, that would make more so, thinking about it, and this is obviously harder to, to visualize unless you know you're watching the video on this. But if I'm a left-handed hitter and the plane of my swing is going to be something like this, so I'm hitting somewhere through the zone like this, 
And me as a righty, my breaking ball would go this way. So my slider would go back in towards their back leg. So essentially you're having two different planes that are going opposite directions where swings going one way and the pitch is breaking back. And get way. under the back. Right. So if my, if my pitch, like to a righty, if a righty is swinging this way and my pitch to a righty is coming back this way, my breaking ball is going this way. Those two things still line up. Oh, I used have, to live on that pitch, man, because I had well, slider bat speed. Well, it's not even, it's not even just the bat speed. It's the angle. Like if your pitch breaks, if your pitch breaks to the plane of the location. So just think about this. If let's say we're at a vertical bat angle of 34 degrees at the bottom of the zone. That doesn't my, exist. The bat's flat going through the zone. I, I read it on Twitter. You're right. <laughs> but then hypothetically, right? No, but 34, let's say it's 34 degrees at the bottom of the zone on this, on this particular pitch. And my, and my pitch break is something similar in angle away i'm gonna have a harder time in that barrel than i would if it's an opposite plane so i think what's gonna end up happening is and it's you already look at like how many pitchers at this point thrown a game right like everything's matchup based you might have an average of four maybe four pitchers at this point a game that i think you know in the, in the future as it goes on i think it's going to keep trending towards less and less role for the starters unless they're like the prime elite starters. And I think you're going to start seeing like the Rays would do like more of a, a setup man starting the game and then going through five to six pitchers in a game. And what you're going to do is you're going to find out, okay, this inning we've got, you know, so-and-so coming up and this is the guy we're worried about this inning. We're going to have our matchup based on this guy having an at bat this inning so we can get him out. And you're going to find guys that throw pitches that, avoid that that person's common barrel plane which makes it harder to hit and i think that's where i think that's where when you talk about getting harder on a hitter is they're going to have pitchers that are going to be specifically designed and their pitches are going to be created their arm slots are going to be created specifically to be able to miss at a higher rate certain barrel angle positions in certain parts of the zone i 100 percent agree that the game will go that way at some point there's just going to be so much information on what swing characteristics match up to the pitch characteristics and vice versa. So now, now thinking about that, you said you think we're going to stay at the top of the zone. And there was a stretch there, especially when the, the launch angle swing was very, uh, was talked about way more than it should, should have been because again, that's a, another one of my rants that I'll say for another day. Um, guys that were sinking the ball, a player that was getting under, or I mean, you can even say guys that were dumping the barrel to get under the ball and get it in the air, that matched up very well. You could get away with that. Now we're seeing strikeouts skyrocketing as the game is adjusted to those type of hitters. So is the next very effective hitter going to be a guy that's actually steep for the fact that they can get on plane to that high pitch pretty easily. They, they can be very effective on a high pitch. Um, now, you can't just change out your roster to guys that are already under contract, but we have said there's way less of those type of guys in our game, guys that are steep. If we, I think we said this on a previous show, if I had 10 guys that had swing flaws of either being steep or dumping, eight or nine of those guys are, are dumping versus the one or two that are potentially steep. So is there going to be a cycle of, guys having success in the minor leagues that are having success because they have a steeper or pushier swing. Now, again, um, that's hypothetical. 
no, I, I, I think, I think in the short term there will honestly, like to, to rectify the situation, what's going to end up happening is the guys that are going to have a better opportunity to succeed are going to be the guys that can make better decisions quicker. So I, you know, you know, you've known me basically my whole baseball life besides partially, partially, I guess my entire playing days too, for the most part. So besides college, you've pretty much known me my entire baseball life. That means we're getting old because that's like and half I, of our lives. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's, not, it's not like I'm 24 and you've known me my whole baseball <laughs> life. Um, but here's the one thing that I, I, I've said for a while, and I honestly, there's a lot of times that I, I need somebody like you, and we've had this conversation to like kind of like sometimes check me, but I feel like I've always had really strange thoughts about how to perceive the game. And I remember growing up, I remember growing up specifically that we never really worked high or low. Everything we did was always middle T, inside T, away T. And I, I remember having this conversation. I think even this started, I think this even started like that one day we were on the bleachers at Bradley with Munson and a couple of the, the uh, new Cubs coaches that were brought in. Um, and we were sitting there talking, we were talking about what, what everybody thought was the most important thing in hitting. And I think every one of you guys agreed on timing. And I think I said posture and posture and balance. And I think you guys kind of looked at me like, okay, man. And I'm like, in my mind, here's what, here's where I'm going with the story. In my mind, the first decision, and th these decisions are all made being made very super rapidly either way. Like the window's really small. But in my mind, the first correct decision that has to be made is pitch height because you're choosing your posture while you're advancing forward. I can choose whether to disconnect early and get an away pitch or stay connected longer to get the inside pitch later in that process. But I have to be able to, I have to be able to get to a relatively correct posture in this, in the step. And if I misjudge, if, I, if I'm thinking that ball's down and that ball's a little bit up and I'm just going to that posture, like I'm already attacking the bottom of the zone, I'm not going to hit that upper part of the zone even if I'm steep. Just like if I'm, if I'm staying, which most of our high school kids do right now, almost every one of our high school kids, when, when, I, when I'm doing the four-on-one stuff that I'm doing and even in lessons, almost every one of these guys lands in the same posture, which is typically almost above the entire strike zone. And then in the turn, they have to not just turn, but they also have to drop to try to get their barrel there. I call that, uh, I think we talked about that in a member's blog, producer Dan, of preferred posture one day. Because most yeah. players will land in a preferred posture and then have to work back to whatever, whatever posture so, needs to be aligned to the ball. So the answer to the question, the answer to that question is, I think what's going to end up happening is we are going to find a better way and a better way to be able to identify who makes better than somebody who makes decisions later who's gonna end up maybe in the gray area and then having to fight down and up versus somebody that can make a little bit more of a correct decision and be able to handle both easier it's still not it's still not ever going to be easy to hit it's like <laughs> it's never going to be easy but those guys i think will have a better chance early early i would agree with you though early i think guys that are steeper are probably going to have and feel like they have a little bit more success combating the high fastball until pitchers realize that they're steeper and then they just pitch them down in the zone anyways. Yeah, I remember having that conversation with Nick Solak when he first got called up with the Rangers. And I think you and I are actually talking about this on the plane because he got, he got pulled out in the middle of the game. And I noticed it as we were 
typically on every trip, this is another story, every trip we've ever taken, we've sat on the tarmac for four hours when we arrived back in Chicago. Just, it's inevitable. We were sitting on the tar- tarmac. I said, hey, Solak just got pulled out of the game. He's, he's going to the big leagues. And I talked to him the next day. And we were just kind of bullshitting. I said, bro, you're fine, man, because the game's played at the top of the zone. And you just murder those balls. So he has, lands in a very upright posture is pretty flat in his vertical bat angle. And he did. He just murdered the competition because guys were throwing velo, which you can't get by him, at the top of the zone. And I think the guy he got traded for, Texas to Tampa, he actually faced, and the guy was chucking 100 at the top of the zone. He hit a home run to line drive to right field early on. But he came in that next offseason. I said, now the league is going to adjust to you. So thinking that really working just nothing but sinkers at the bottom of the zone, uh, because you know the, the league is going to adjust and they're going to find your preferred posture and work away from it. And uh, you know sometimes that was a struggle for him in this past year for a, a couple of different reasons. But um, that's definitely something that is at the forefront of pitching guys' minds. Like, where does this guy line up to a ball, and how am I going to combat that? And that's really hard. But this is also why I think as you keep going, this is why veteran pitchers a lot of times have a huge role in organizations and should because some of the younger guys coming up are learning to pitch in one style, which is normal. Like when you're young, you're when I say young, I'm saying getting out of college first into pro ball, you know, preparing for that moment of, of getting into pro ball, you're grooved into kind of having – a single way to throw. So like now, obviously it's been a lot of like high spin top of the zone, you know, something breaking away, trying to have, you know, some characteristics there. And what happens is as these guys play long enough, you realize that you can learn and create an arsenal that can do a bunch of different things where you could, let's say, throw a two seam. And if you're very aware as to how to get to different pressure on the ball at release and spin, you can make a two seam go multiple different directions at different speeds without changing very much. And you could throw two different variations of a slider and you could throw two different variations of a curveball, and you can, or multiples of them. I mean, you could throw more than that. You could change the angles of them rather easy if you have that feel. And the only way to get that feel is to have thrown a ton of baseballs in your life. So with the veterans, because you, you're going to get all these young guys now, they're going to be really good at forcing them up at the top of the zone, but are probably not going to spend much time in their life learning how to sink a pitch. So now you're going, hey, man, this, this Solak guy hits balls at the top of the zone pretty hard. Even if, you, even if you're running up there upper 90s, like he's, there's a chance he's going to get you. And these guys are going to go like, I don't know how to sink a ball at the bottom of the zone because I haven't really spent time doing it because the trend has been going here. And you're going to go back to those veteran pitchers and go, okay, well, these guys can still spin – a good enough fastball at the top of the zone, but they already know how to sink a pitch. They know how to cut a pitch. They know how to. So yeah, I think both you guys do both. You're right, Travis. I, I had that conversation with multiple hitters. It's like, okay, I know kind of what my sights need to be today because this guy is either a four seam rider or he's a, and there's just a lot less sinker ballers in the game today, but, or he's going to sink and cut it. And you kind of know, okay, I know what my posture is probably going to be today. I know what my sights are probably going to be. And if you have a guy who can do both, which I think is pretty rare, you would know pitching names better than I, but uh, that does seem like a, a devastating combo. But it shouldn't, it shouldn't be. And I think that's where pitching is still going to go, which is why I said like th- this game is only going to continue to get harder and harder for hitters. Like that's, it is what it is. And you know, people, people from the outside of the game that aren't in the game and don't 
know the intricacies of kind of like the detail of pitch design and spin and what spin does to the ball and what that does to hitters vision and what it does to hitters decision making like people that don't play the game or haven't seen where it's going now have a hard time understanding why hitters aren't hitting 340 and barreling more balls and why are they striking out so much and like the game the game is getting harder and that is nothing to do with like guys that we grew up watching play man like those dudes were those dudes were dudes and those dudes would have if they had the information we have now the ability to adjust stuff they would have been just as nasty as yeah. the guys we have now like it, it wouldn't have been different like it those guys would have adjusted right to the yeah. difference of what we have but it's crazy like it's it's only going to get harder and harder and harder for hitters which is why the premium for good hitters is just going to keep skyrocketing because if you can get a guy that's a premium hitter there is so much value in that because it is such a hard such a hard hard thing okay so here's my next hypothetical question you could have one superior trait this was another another in the cage uh discussion we had with the hitters last week you could have one superior trait which one are you going to pick you are superior at decision making as a hitter or you're superior at having bat to ball skills that's a tough one. That is a, I knew that that was going to be the second option. As soon as you said the first option, I was like, man, if he gives me that second option, this is going to be a difficult answer. Holy crap. Okay. I'm, I'm going to try to do what I'm going to try to do the opposite of what you did last week. When I asked you a question and you took a little bit of both sides, I'm going to pick one side. So let me think, let me, give yeah, me I, like, I, would, I would pick one side here too. Give me, give me, man. All right. So I'm going to take bat to ball. As would I. Only, only because even if you're making bad decisions, you're still having an opportunity to succeed. Okay, I'm going to counter your argument. I, I would choose that one too, but I'm going to counter your argument because if I'm a good decision maker, doesn't that mean I'm typically swinging at balls in the heart of the zone, which would be easier to hit? Yes, but that doesn't mean you're squaring them up. I mean, at the end of the day, the money, the money is still going to go to the guys that can barrel balls. Now, here's the thing. You barrel the ball at the big league level, it's going to come off your bat 100-plus. If you, if you barrel it, every one of them, if you barrel it, if you miss hit it a little bit, comes off at 90 or 92 or whatever it ends up being, 85 or less. Uh, the bigger, stronger player is going to come off hot still, right? That, that was the whole gist. But I'm saying, but I'm saying, well, but I'm saying mishitting pop-ups that but were going out of the park. But that mishit might have been a micro fraction. Like, for example, Mark McGuire's 62nd home run was an awful mishit. It was a top-spinning line drive hooking around the foul pole that you and I, that is a – it's a hit still for us over, over the shortstop's head. He hit that damn thing out of the park. Top spin a ball out of the park because right. he was so strong. And I'm not saying you can't miss it and hit balls hard. I'm saying that if you took and you take two round objects, they only touch at one point. So there's only one, there's only really one actual spot that's the actual sweet spot. And everything else around it is a little less of the sweet spot that gives you a little bit more flight up, a little more flight down, a little bit more in on the handle, a little bit more away towards the end. That it depends on how big the miss hit is. So, you know, it's a tough question, but I would – you know, like you said, I, I'm going to go with a guy that has better barrel awareness. 
simply because that guy is going to give me a better chance, even on bad decisions. Like look at a guy like, like growing up, the first guy that I always think about is like Vladimir Guerrero. Like that guy probably made so many bad pitch decision swings, but still barreled balls like at his neck. He barreled balls at his toes. He barreled balls that should have hit him in the hands. He, you know what I mean? Like those weren't good swing decisions. Those were just that dude could get a barrel to a ball no matter where the ball was. Yeah, and I, I, I like that from a training standpoint with young kids. Um, when you're really young, I want to learn that barrel awareness by hitting everything. Learn how to hit bad balls. Like, learn where your barrel is in space. Because what I wrote down here, and the reason why I chose bat-to-ball skills over decision-making, is you can get yourself out of trouble. Now, you now. Again, you can swing at bad pitches and be in trouble but in, and put balls in play very weakly. But you, you see the knack of hitting those hitterish guys that take ugly swings at times and are still very effective. And that, to me, that's a sign of a good hitter. I, like, sometimes I do it ugly, and it's still productive. Um, yeah, but I think that younger hitters, like, learn to hit everything, learn that barrel awareness, but then – the hard part, and this is a hard training question, is when do you insert decision-making into skill acquisition? Like, at what age is that? Okay, now I've got a little bit of feel of the barrel. Now I need to hone that in because we just went from learn to hit everything to, no, I don't want you to see that borderline. I think you do, I think you do, it, I think you do it at the same time. They're just different days, or different, different parts of different days. Like, so it's the same thing we do in throwing. Like, in throwing, I tell kids all the time, like, you need to have – you need to have days that are strictly velocity days where even if you can't get this ball into the zone, it is learn to move, learn to throw this ball hard. So you get used to moving fast and being able to learn the ability to control moving fast. Then we have days that are just command days where it's, listen, like we're not going at optimal, even game velocity. We need to just be able to understand our body's awareness to be able to get this ball in the direction we're trying to go. Then we have blend days. So we have blend days where it's like, hey, what is the highest velo we can be at where we can still command the ball? So we don't do those typically all on the same day. We do those segmented out. So they understand like you're not trying to just be one or the other, but you understand that there's certain days like you're going to have certain days in a cage where I'm going to tell a kid, listen, you need to hit every single ball I throw to you. And in your mind, I tell them, like, in your mind, you need to just find a way to get your barrel to it on this day, period. Your only job is barrel awareness. Barrel on every single ball, whether it's low ball flight, whether it's pull side, whether it's oppo side, whether it's line drive, no matter what it is, find a way to get your barrel to the ball. We have days where it's like, listen, let, let's try to set a PR on how much exit speed we can have. And then we have days where, like, listen, you need to now only swing at balls that are in your preferred zone in this situation. So like, where, where do you feel like you're the best at, at hitting? Everywhere up in the zone. Great. So today you're only allowed to hit balls that are up in the zone. And then we'll have days like hitting is so much more difficult. So these days, as you blend them, there's more days because you have to react. So then there's days like, okay, now you have to hit every single ball I throw you, but you have to get within 10%, 15% of your overall max exit speed. So now you're accountable for not only trying to hit every single ball, but you're accountable for trying to maintain speed while you're trying to barrel balls. Yeah, that's really good training advice, Travis. That's, that's, a, that's a golden nugget for today's show right there. But you can't do it. It's really hard to – not for older kids, maybe different, but for, for like even high school kids, it's hard for them to compartmentalize. So I can't 
it's hard to do multiple of those things during the course of one session because their brain a lot of times has a hard time switching. Yeah. So if I'm like, Hey, we're swinging everything. Now I'm like, okay, now let's try to control we're hitting their brain still is like, wait, but I'm supposed to wait. Was it wait? Okay. We're only swinging at this now. So I try to like compartmentalize it from day to day, but I also tell them like, that's part of their responsibility. Again, when you're working with an athlete that you can be with every day, it's different than when I get kids typically one day a week. So when they come in, I say, listen, your responsibility in the next week before I see you again is to get through a couple of these other days. So if we're doing a velo day in here an exit an exit velo day in here, you need to get through a command day. You need to get through a barrel awareness day. You need to get through this stuff on your own. So when you come back next week, we're going to do barrel awareness. So then you're off week. You're going to have to get through your, you know, bat speed day. And you're going to have to get through your decision-making day. And you're going to have to get through those things on your own. And if you had somebody every day, it's a little bit different, right? Because then you can kind of like, hey, let's monitor, you know, Mondays are this, Tuesdays are that. So they have a routine of here's what we're going through. So, I mean, I think that's probably a key to a lot of it is learning how to blend those things because you have to have both. You can't be like, Hey, we're going to spend the first three years only hitting everything. Oh, by the way, you're really bad at decision-making and now it's going to take three more years for that. And by the time you're done with that, like you're not on a team. Sorry, man. Well said. Now, so I got some follow-ups to that then. So why, as I'm thinking back to when we were watching baseball, there were way more really good bat to ball guys in the eighties and nineties than there are in today's game. However, there were way fewer just pure sluggers in the game back then compared to what we have now. Like if you think of some guys that profile similar to some sluggers in the big leagues now, I think of Rob Deere from your beloved uh, Brewers and Dave Kingman, who spent some time with the Cubs, like guys that could hit the – Ron Kittle could hit the moonshots that, that were striking out. There was a ton of swing and miss. And there were just way fewer of those guys at that time. Um, do you think um, in the game, I mean, do you think that that was just a population or do you think the game valued something different back then? hundred percent. It's not the kid. There's no kid that wants to strike out now, but it's also changed. I think kids are more aware that they're not ever, they're still not trying to strike out, but they're more aware that there's a little bit of risk involved with taking a shot. And when we were coming up, it was even more so now than today, the value was placed on getting to the ball and not striking out. And again, that, that was my approach as a hitter as well. Right. Like, and it's, it's not like it's changed. It's not, people still don't want to, it's not like, again, it's not like kids are saying it's okay to strike out. There's nobody going up there and saying that there's not coaches like saying, Hey man, but I think there's a little bit more of an understanding that it's, it's part of the game. It's like, it's like Steph Curry going out and missing his first, four three-pointers of a game he's not gonna be like oh you know what I'm really struggling today I'm just gonna stop shooting Steph Curry's gonna go this is what I get paid to do like I believe I'm gonna hit this next shot and today just might not be my day I might be one for nine today man hey guys I'm sorry sorry I, I didn't have it today they're not gonna be like oh man we, we we're so disappointed in you they're gonna be like well that's fine because you're gonna bail us out the next three games cool man like go do your thing and I think the same thing now is like you're understanding like if a guy doesn't and can't do the job one day, people aren't freaking out as much because people are like, listen, like we know your value. We know you're going to get us at some point. You're going to help us when we need you. Like, and back then it was, it was different, man. It's like, if you didn't put a ball in play, like you, you were going to probably sit the bench. Like, Hey man, you struck out twice today. You're sitting the bench. You're sitting the bench tomorrow. And you're like, what? Like I'm the three hole hitter. What do you mean? I'm sitting the bench. I need you to be able to put those balls in play, man. 
You're like, what? So, I mean, it's changed now. We're like, three hitter strikes out a couple of times. Coach is like, Hey man, you're still batting three. Cause you're still our, you're still our dude. Like I understand you had a bad game. Maybe it's, Hey, you just need to make better pitch to sit. You need to screen up better pitches. That's why you struck out today or whatever. But. So I have a potential hypothesis for why there were more of those players. And this is just. <laughs> thought, I certainly haven't put much time into this thought. Um, I feel like the way we played the game growing up factors into those bat to ball skills where much more of this was sandlot and wiffle ball. And you try to just put everything in play. Like you aren't taking pitches in sandlot and wiffle ball because I don't want to have to turn around and go chase it and then like throw it back to the pitcher. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to swing. Yeah. Um, and everything today is completely organized. You think there's any, any legs to that thought? No, you're, you're in my mind again, without having, there's no, there's going to be hard to have any kind of data support anything or any kind of whatever just from my interpretation of me growing up and what I see now. Yes. I ask kids all the time. Like you play home run derby. Like, do you ever play, like, do you ever go and play like half the field out, man? I learned, I had to learn how to hit the other way because we had left-handed friends. So anytime we'd play half the field out, we'd play the first, we'd play the first four innings where you had hit every ball to left field. And the next four innings were for the lefties. And you just learned, you learned to hit everything to, to, to right field because you had to because otherwise you're out if you pull the ball past center you were out so you learn and not only that i wasn't just gonna lay balls like roll balls to the second baseman and be out when i hit right field it's like i'm gonna hit a ball over the fence to right field so i mean it's one of those things like you you learn to do it and we did it every day there was not a during the summer and the fall i don't think there was ever more than two days in a row that i wasn't on a baseball field hitting in some capacity home run derby half the field out full field ghost runners like just throwing balls up and just hitting balls by myself like it just there was never more than two days ever that I wasn't down there in a row I, I got something a story to add to that so I, I had a cage in my yard growing up so there was no excuse for me to bat, be, be a bad hitter and I hit all the time um, and I had my best friends were twins that were my age and we had just really good baseball teams growing up and we kind of pushed each other, right? Because we were always, we threw BP to each other. We, we hit all the time. But sometimes you'd want to see ball flight more than just in a cage. So their dad would throw us batting practice. We had a lot at the end of our street. We'd just walk down there, walk across the creek, and we would take BP. Well, on, on this field, it was just a backstop. There was no fence. There was no infield. It was just a grass field with a backstop. Um, and I purposely kind of being a, a jerk they you know you only have two fielders out there so wherever they were I would purposely hit the ball into the open field just because I wanted to drive them nuts and having to chase the ball from left field to right field and then they got in right field I'd hit the ball to left field and I always had really good bat to ball skills like that and could place the ball kind of wherever I wanted but um like you know being a division one player I I probably wouldn't be a division one player today because all I did was hit singles and then I was I could run well, maybe I, I mean I could run yeah. but I was 6'2 200 and there was no excuse why I didn't hit with power but I didn't value that like I just I was really good at putting a barrel on a baseball and being kind of careful about it I, I think I told a story in one of these previous podcasts that I didn't strike out like my my whole high school season until the last game of the year um because I like I was careful that I didn't want to strike out. I wanted to put a ball in play, and I could kind of place the ball really wherever I wanted. So, yeah. But I, I learned that on the Sandlot, like being a dick to my friends because I wanted them <laughs> to run around and chase the ball more. 
we did the same thing. Anytime somebody would shift, if you were playing whole field or whatever, it was like you would learn to hit it where they weren't because that's the way you could get the most bases. It wasn't just to annoy them. It was like, this is how you're going to get more than one base. I'm going to hit it there and I'm going to run, especially for a guy like you that had speed, just hit it where they ain't. You know, but again, like, you know, I, I'll do a lot of times in my group stuff, like when I do, like through our four-on-one stuff, I'll do, I'll do horse days in the cage where we play horse. And it's like, all right, call your shot. And the guy will be like, okay, I'm going to hit it in between the L screen and the side net at this height. And then they get their shot and they, they hit the ball and either goes or not. If they hit it through where they need it to go, then the next guy's got to come up and replicate. And, you know, watching guys, watching younger kids try to figure out how to control the angularity and the height of the ball. It's, it's crazy. That skill isn't just more innate in them because they haven't spent time doing it. And you'll watch them just like struggle to like, like even where they set up on the ball, they're like, okay, I'm gonna hit this ball the other way. And then they'll stand like two feet back of the ball. I'm like, how are you going to try to fillet that ball that direction? Like just move your body to where you could hit the ball that direction. Like that, that's just common sense in my mind. But I feel like, I feel like because they haven't spent as much time feeling and understanding that because they haven't necessarily had to, it hasn't been, it hasn't been coached that way. You know, it's, it's Dan just, they was doing a, a good drill with an advanced eight-year-old in the cage that, that I really liked for what you're talking about of uh, barrel awareness and control. And it was simply the player throwing the ball up themselves and hitting it. But what Dan would do, and this is a, a fairly advanced, if you, if you want to call any eight-year-old advanced, but this is an eight-year-old that's way better than his age demographic. As soon as he would start the toss and the ball's coming into the air, Dan would call out left, center, or right. And so the player has that decision to make while the ball's in the air and how to angle their swing to hit the ball around the cage. I thought it was a, a really clever but yet simple drill for, for young kids that are getting some, some barrel awareness. Yeah, I like that too. I like that, you know, I've, I've been going back a little bit more to the self-flips, like having kids self-flip, because a lot of times too, when you've got length in the swing, it starts to eliminate length yeah. in the swing. Now, you got to limit them how high they can flip the ball. I mean, that's why I'm so good at hitting a fungo, man, because I had a push pattern. <laughs> Yeah, but right, because you had to, you have to take out some space. Like, there's, there's a limited amount of time. So I like that. I like that a lot of times as a little bit more of a warm-up than even sometimes tea, depending on where the kid's at in his, his cycle. But that's a good one. I'm going to I'm gonna have to play with that one this week. Yeah, I like that one. That, that was a, it can get pretty competitive. It's almost like your horse game. Yeah. And, you know, in these shows, I like to, to throw out a couple drills that, that maybe we're doing for the day. And we'll finish today's show on the drill segments. Um, people like to knock creativity and drills because it can be taken out of context and look goofy. <laughs> and I've certainly seen some, we, you and I have seen some bad drills that maybe we took out of context. At one time when we used to share a, a particular Western suburb facility where it was just kind of the wild west of instructors. You could just, any instructor could rent a cage and, you and I were working out of there and a bunch of other people were. And we saw some really bad drills. I think one of them you videotape was the chair drill. Chair like, drill. So I'm hitting in the chair. Like, what the hell is this? Um, and we have a, if you haven't looked at this on YouTube, we have a, a, a series that I did probably close to 10 years ago now. That was the, the top 10 worst hitting drills of all time. I, I, one of them that came to mind on that one is the back toss, like tossing from the catcher's perspective yeah. forward. The, um, the, the 2T toss or 2T drill, they swing straight down on the ball, which 
you know, can again, take it out of context. There can be some guys that that is actually beneficial for if you're trying to take dumping out of it. But what are some of the most creative drills that you've done? And you can in the context, but looking from the outside in, if you didn't know the context, you'd be like, what in the world is this guy doing? And why is he doing it? Well, the first one's easy. The, the first one's easy because, and even though it's probably more prevalent now, um, was the first time I was standing around, honestly, in my yard, and I was just trying to figure out how to find a way to be better connected. And I started doing, I started doing those check swing, check swings with the PVC. And I was like, oh man, like this, you know, my mind, I'm like, man, this feels really good. Like, I really like the way that like, I feel like I have to be connected to control the whip of this thing. And I can really see when I break the end of the PVC really go and like the connectivity and the D cell in that. And then I started, I started testing it and I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to go on the force plate. I'm going to put a K vest on me. I want to see like how this actually affects what I'm doing. And then the numbers were considerably better. And I was like, all right, let me get this on like 10, 20, 30 other kids. I want to kind of see like what's going on here. And the amount of people that that put in sequence, the amount of people that help their D cell and the amount of people that that would help their rotary rotary acceleration. Yeah, that's um, awesome. And we tested well, that with, but the, from the, the, but from the outside, but from the outside, you'd be like, what are these, what are these idiots doing with PVCs? Like, that's not baseball. You don't hit a baseball with a PVC. They're doing all these weird, like split grip check swing, like motor control, all... man. Yeah. Your body so, doesn't I mean, know what you're swinging. Your body remembers how you move. One of the best right. things Corey told me was one of his kids from, I think our travel organization, four on ones, uh, told Corey that he asked for a PVC pipe for Christmas. It's like, it's the cheapest, best 75 cents you're going to spend to make you a, a better mover and hitter. Yeah, it's just like being in the gym, though. It's just, you're not saying like this is, this is you're going to take a PVC up to the plate and do a check swing with a split grip. Like we're not saying that's what you're going up to do in the game. It's just like going to the weight room. If you've got a deficiency, you go to the weight room and you fix your deficiency. If you've got a deficiency in movement, you're not always going to fix that deficiency just by swinging a normalized in a normalized pattern because your brain is already going to associate that pattern with how you move that you sometimes have to jump out and do something else to get the brain to allow that pattern to readjust. So, I mean, that was definitely one of the ones that if I didn't know and I saw it from the outside 15 years ago, I'd have been like, what's this guy doing? But I'm also one of those guys, like when I see people doing something weird, the first thing I do is I go try it <laughs> because I'm like, well, let me see, like, let me see what it feels like. Let me, cause if I'm not going to have time to be able to talk to that person about, what they're doing which a lot of times you don't they're in another cage i'm not gonna be like hey man what you got going on with this drill like well i'm in a lesson i can't talk to you that's fine all right well i'm you're gone before i get done with work so i'm not gonna be able to ask you now and but i'll go and try it and i try i can't even tell you how many things i've tried and some of the stuff i'm like okay like i can see where maybe this is going to help somebody that's got this issue or i might be like ah, i don't like that at all or you know but i think that's the other thing is so many people are so closed-minded that they're not even going to they're not going to even think like, what could this be doing? They're not going to want to hear it out. They're not going to want to try it and feel something for themselves. They're just going to go, that's not the way that I grew up learning the game. So that's just weird that you're doing it this way. And they're like, that's why the, the gets, this is the only reason why the game's getting worse is because you guys got all these weird things that you're doing now. And that's the only reason my guys can't hit, you know? <laughs> I think we do a whole segment, maybe next show, just on D cell and what it is and why it's so important. Cause I think if you, if you haven't trained, emphasizing that which we didn't in baseball for years and years at least consciously yeah. um 
it is really interesting and, and really important. We can kind of explain the science and the drills behind that. So let's log that for next one. So, so what about, here's something what about you? that you what's, probably what's, do. What's well. something you've done that? Yeah, I'm not near as creative as you guys. Like you and Rachel, I always say are our most creative coaches. I, I think probably uh, she was talking about the chuck it stick in which I thought, and she was using it different than I did. And I, I told her, I was like, man, Rachel, I think like 15 years ago when I was first at the White Sox Academy, and I'm pretty sure I stole it from Craig Wallenbrock um, because I'd probably just met him at that time in like 2005 when he was at White Sox spring training. Um, and I was using it for like lead arm direction, right? And yeah. she was using it recently for barrel dumpers because if you accelerate early, you lose the ball out of the chuck it stick. So it was I was doing it for a one-handed drill. She was doing it for a two-handed drill. And it, but it made a lot of sense. I was like, man, Rachel, this isn't new. I was doing, doing this 15 years ago. And I, I'm not taking credit for making up the drill, but drills become cyclical. But if you see somebody with a chuck it stick, you're, you're like, what in the world is this person doing if you take it out of context? Um, well, I, I mean, did. Think about, think about how long ago they had that. They had the, the, the bat where the plastic slid up and down and you could hear it click. Yeah. I mean, that in, in essence, is a similar idea. Right, when it clicks, correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think the majority of people, when we were using that, it clicked way out front, right? And I'd, I was like, man, I don't like this thing because all it's just teaching people to push and get their bat speed 10 feet out in front of their body. But yeah, it's, it's amazing how that's changed. But what, what I was gonna say is, I'm gonna, I have a project for myself today. And I thought, I woke up at 4.30 in the morning this morning, I had to use the bathroom. And for whatever reason, I thought about the first DVD, hitting DVD that I made close to 15 years ago at the White Sox Academy, with awful audio. And I have no idea why I thought about this at 4.30, 4, 4.30 this morning, because I probably haven't thought about this DVD in 12 years. I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to find it in my closet. I'm going to listen to it today and see and write down, maybe this is another future show, how many things I would or would not say how many drills I like or don't like, and just basically, are things cyclical or have we evolved? Um, and maybe I'll, I'll cut up some things and put them on Twitter of making fun at maybe some of the things I'm seeing or saying. But for whatever reason, I do think of hitting in the middle of the night. Sometimes I, I, I have a pad of paper on my nightstand and I write things down. It's like, oh, I don't wanna lose this idea. And I know when I go back to sleep, I'm gonna lose this idea. Uh, this was just an idea of seeing how much better or, or worse I think I've become in the last 12, 12 years since we cut that DVD. Do you remember that one? Yeah, I think it'll be a mixed bag. I think you're going to look at some and be like, okay, this, this would still play. And I think you're going to look at some and be like, okay, well, probably moved on a little bit from that thought. And that thought might not be gone, but you're probably going to be like, I probably either don't value that as much or I, you know, we value it in a different way now. But I guarantee you that there's definitely going to be some of those things that you're going to be like, yep, that would still, we either still do that right now or, you know what, that's something I should get back to a little bit more of because maybe I did put that away a little bit and now that might have more value in your mind again, simply like seeing it again going, oh, you know what? We've been having a lot of barrel dump. Like this actually will be another thing we could do to to alleviate that with a you know, movement or a thought or whatever. Yeah, that, definitely interesting. That same pitching question I asked you to start today's show of where is the game training? I, I said I asked that to a, a pitching guy that that uh, I really respect this morning. And he came back at me, he said, what new revelations have you had in hitting this year? And we used to do all, and we still have a, like a, a research and development group that is always in the academy and they're young kids. They're just 
trying to learn as much as I can, which is great. Uh, but it used to be just us, like anything that we were researching and it took way longer time to do a study because it was just us. And now, you know, I'm in an organization that has a full R and D team. And I thought back as like the amount that I have learned that of course is proprietary. Um, but that I learned this year is just incredible of how much faster we could become better instructors because of guys that oftentimes are a computer most of the day, but are really, really smart and get it and then get it to people like us that we transfer it to the field. And that's just like awesome. So, so excited and thankful that I get the opportunity to, to, to learn like that all the time. And someday down the line, when these certain pieces become like commonplace, because I, I do think there's a competitive advantage that um, everybody's trying to get to, but we'll, when everything becomes commonplace, then we can talk about them. But for the time being, we can't, but it's really, really exciting. It's, this is, this is one of those things I think people need to understand too, because this is now probably the third, the third, maybe even fourth episode that we've referenced something similar to this. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is like, it takes, it takes a village, man. Like, like you said, like when we first started the, you know, not only do we have to do our normal grind of lessons and you know even like when i was running the satellite facilities like the day-to-day -day operations of that place plus cranking out the lessons plus trying to learn stuff plus like it's a lot and, it's a, we didn't have kids at that time either um because we we were spending yes 16 hours a day like all of our time away from the cage we were still spending on hitting but think think about think about Think about once we first started getting into the same place together with Elite and being able to have road trips every other weekend and yeah. being able to sit and talk. Think about how much more rapidly we were able to advance sure. our knowledge. Just having that's why I wanted to do the podcast. I know, but just, but just I got a good idea for your variability training today. I thought that was great. But just but just have just having two of us. Now think about how much think about how much our team has grown since then. Not only, not only, obviously, your ability to have a bigger backing with the Cubs' resources, but even the team that we have in Elite, like the amount of guys, like you go in there anytime, and there are not only just guys in our staff, guys that are there in hours and time that they don't need to be there, like just grinding out this stuff to be able to not only help further develop them as as people trying to work their way into the industry, but being able to give us more information and more thoughts to think about and more like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to throw an idea back at you. What about this? Why don't you go look into that? And they go, Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll go look at that. And you go, okay, sick. Cause like, come back and tell me what you got. Like, I want to know what you got. And then if it's something that seems like it's reasonable, then I'm going to go back and spend a little more time on it too. And like, cause that makes it honestly, at the end of the day, it makes it easier. It's hard to sit and grind all that out by yourself. Cause it is, a very overwhelming singular task and you need, we, you need thoughts coming from different angles too because you, you get caught in your own rabbit holes like, and you need people helping with legwork and you need people with all those skills and that's one of those things that's why i think we probably brought that up now about you know our second our secondary staff like everybody outside of you and i um that is just on a daily basis just out there killing it you know and like it just yeah. I don't know if I told you, Swing Catalyst is sending us a, a new balance plate, their, their new technology. So oh, we just got out Swing Catalyst here today. That's the force plates that we've been using. And if I'm not mistaken, we had the first or second one ever full-size batter's box 
uh, <laughs> arguably in the world. And we got a, like a, a year, if not 18 months in advance on the industry of, of learning how this is important and how to teach from it. So I, I, I'm really excited that they're lending us their, their new product that they're trying to advance and ha have us research in. I think we're going to get a lot out of that. That's awesome. I can't wait. I can't wait for it to come in and go in and give a, give a three, four hour demo on it every day for the next month. Once it gets in and just kind of play around. And yeah, I think out. it's probably a month away from getting to our door, but it's, yeah, we'll get lots of new things on the horizon, Travis. Awesome, man. Exciting. Yeah. It's exciting. All right. it's a, it's a, who, who are you going to give the shout out today to? I that's, gave Swing Catalyst a shout out. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to, I'm going to give a shout out to this dog right here. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by my dog, Bear. Bear's likes, a good looking dog, man. Who likes, who likes to lay on the back cushion of the couches because he doesn't, he doesn't lay on a couch like a normal dog. Uh, so I'm going to give my shout out to him for ruining all my pillows. I appreciate him a lot. <laughs> all right. Good show. Absolutely, man. All right, we'll see you. All right, bro.